1981, the archetypical image of an archaeologist has included a wide-brimmed brown hat, a brown leather jacket, and, of course, a bullwhip. Now, I've been to a lot of archaeological sites here in Israel, and I've yet to meet an archaeologist who can handle a bullwhip. But this week, with the new Indiana Jones film having hit screens across the globe, I, Amanda Borshaldan, wondered how this Hollywood legend has affected the careers of the actual digging-in-the-trenches excavators here in Israel today. So I met up with Professor Aaron Mayer, who recently published an essay on my colleague, Dr. Jones, and his publications. I think this has nothing to do with archaeology, and if anything, you know, I would say it's almost anti-archaeology in many ways, but... It has um, brought archaeology to the public's interest in a very, very significant manner. And numerous archaeologists in the field for the last several decades have come to archaeology because of the Indiana Jones movies. Aaron is the head of Bar-Ilan University's Institute of Archaeology and the longtime director of the Tel Asafi Gat Archaeological Project. Yes, Goliath's hometown. So after watching the new Indiana Jones film, Dial of Destiny, we sat together this week to discuss how archaeology has shifted from the first Indiana Jones installment until today. So this week, I asked Professor Aaron Mayer, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Aaron, thank you so much for joining me today in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios. My pleasure. We are here in a week in which Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr. has put out another publication, his fifth in a series after a very long break. And so I ask you, Aaron, this week, what matters now? Well, I think we have to discuss Dr. Jones' new publication. And I think it's a great opportunity to do it. Yeah. That's for sure. And of course, we're being a little tongue-in-cheek here, and we're talking about Indiana Jones. And his new publication is, of course, The Dial of Destiny, which you and I coincidentally saw in the same Jerusalem theater this week. Absolutely. Yeah. I wasn't expecting you there, but there you were. <laughs> same. And, and first of all, did you enjoy the film? I think I enjoyed it as a, a light adventure film. I would say probably for a, you know, sort of like a teenage-like crowd. Um, 
It wasn't, I would say, as enjoyable as maybe the first Indiana Jones um, movie, but I think it was better than a few of the following ones. For sure. I, I think the first and the third are my personal favorites. Mm -hmm. And now you're an archaeologist, of course, for the past 40 years, and you've in a way had to live under the shadow of the Indiana Jones legacy. Mm -hmm. So briefly, how has that affected your job? Well, first of all, very often when I introduce myself as an archaeologist, and by the way, that's always great, is I think this is perhaps the only profession when you introduce yourself, what you do, you always hear, oh, that's cool. Oh, I wanted to do that when I was a kid, etc. So there's always a nice aspect to that. You very rarely say, oh, that's boring. Why are you doing that? Um, so that's one good thing. And the other thing is very often, um, you'll be said, oh, you know, I know archaeology, Indiana Jones, you know, and are you Indiana Jones or something of the sort? And not only that, is that uh, time and again, quite embarrassingly, um, I'm introduced by the PR of my university as our Indiana Jones or something of the sort. So it's um, it's it's always there in the background. Yeah. We in media, of course, like shorthand and just saying Indiana Jones means archaeologist. Mm -hmm. But Indiana Jones is not exactly a classical archaeologist. And even for his time period, he would be an outlier. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I would say that, first of all, all the I'd say the interface between the figure, uh, Indiana Jones, and real archaeology is very, very, uh, I would say, minimal. Um, Indiana Jones, as he's portrayed, even though he is portrayed as a professor of archaeology, he really is something more or less like a, an adventurer slash grave robber slash, um, I don't know, um, you know, collector of uh, valuables. Uh, it's very different from, of course, archaeology of today in the last few decades. But I would say it's, um, it's even different from most of what was going on in archaeology, um, you know, in the times that are described in these movies, you know, the right before, during, and right after World War II. And I think um, it's more of an image of this, um, you know, the great white hunter going out, you know, to these barbarian lands and saving, um, you know, the relics. And I think that's um, what's going on there. And to a certain extent, that does connect to an image that did exist uh, of the, um, the explorer, the hunter, the archaeologist who went all over the world, usually under the aegis of a, some sort of a colonial power, you know, uh, United States, England, Germany, Russia, um, France, etc., cetera, uh, went to faraway places and, um, you know, rescued, you know, uh, these, these objects. And so many of the large museums in the, in the world are filled with all kinds of objects that were so-called rescued by these um, explorers and taken to European capitals, very often poorly excavated, even in the standards of the time, um, and exhibited till today. And one of the things that's going on now today is that many of the countries from which these objects originate are asking them to be returned uh, from the museums. And so for the, the best known example is the Elgin marbles. From, they want returned from the British Museum to Greece, but there are many other examples um, throughout the world. 
I'm glad you're talking about that. And it, it isn't something that I anticipated that we'd speak about. But even in Israel, we have in the Israel Museum many cases of questionable parentage or provenance, at least, including, for example, the very famous Steinhardt Neolithic masks that mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. still some on display today. And in in terms of researching where they came from, it seems really, really clear that they came from the West Bank. And so the question becomes, especially in light of this year, something being repatriated from the United States to the Palestinian Authority from the Steinhardt collection, the question becomes, whose responsibility is it to perhaps continue in that trend? Well, I think there is the aspect of the um, the unprovidence antiquities um, in general, and that's something that's, I would say, it's a, it's a subset of some of the ethical problems in archaeology. It's not equal to this, um, to the, the great white hunters who are stealing these objects <laughs> from, from, you know, the, the, the poor uncivilized countries, you know, of course, and, um, I'm, I'm, I'm meaning that, uh, cynically, the unprovinced uh, antiquities is, uh, basically the problems that we don't know where they come from in general. And it's almost always an indication that these are objects that were, um, uh, retrieved through uh, robbing, through illicit excavations um, that were, first of all, against the law in any country. Two, they destroy the sites from which uh, the objects are taken. Um, three, we lose the context of the object and, and be, to be able to understand because with all due respect, even to Indiana Jones, there is no you know, inherent importance in a beautiful object if you don't understand the context from what it from which it came, did it come from a temple? Did it come from a private house? Did it come from this period or that period or from this site or that site? And once you don't have the the contextual information, we're losing uh, an enormous amount of uh, information. I would say the most important information. And I think we're very very captivated by the the beauty or the uniqueness of an object. But uh, for the information that we want to learn about the past, and that's what we do, we want to understand society of the past better, just the object, it's a nice thing, but it tells us only a very small part of the, of the story that could be told by a, um, the, an object or objects in their actual context, excavated well, documented well, and researched well. Which is why, turning back to the film series, whenever Indiana Jones says, this belongs in a museum, that's only part of the story, right? It doesn't only belong in a museum, it belongs to have five different works of research uh, published about it as well. Well, that's that's also, and it's, it's sort of funny that, you know, um, I mean, again, it's a movie and, you know, you can do whatever you want to and you can say whatever you want to, but I'm saying if we would take Indiana Jones and judge him as a, um, a bona fide archaeologist. So it belongs in a museum is, I'd say, one step in the right direction, even though in some of his, mo- if I remember there was one movie he was willing to trade antiquities with uh, some sort of an underworld figure. So um, that that's a little fishy. Um, but again, uh, it belongs in the museum, first of all, after it's well excavated, well documented. And for example, what museum? Um, does it belong in a museum in Paris or London, or does it belong in a museum that in that country or even local to the f- area of the find? And then that's already something to be said is, you know, who are you to say which museum this belongs to? It belongs to um, the country of origin. It belongs to the place of origin. You know, the, the people who live there want to learn about their past. So 
they should be able to learn about it through the objects that were excavated properly and documented properly. And so uh, the great white hunter coming and say, oh, this is a beautiful piece. It's going to look great in the Louvre. It's going to look great in the British Museum. Who are you to say that? Correct. And that's one of the evolutions of archaeology that we're here to discuss. Mm -hmm. In fact, people going after objects isn't necessarily the theme of archaeology today. We're more interested in discovering how the people were. But even, let's take the 1930s when Indiana Jones started his career. Here in Israel, there were several excavations that were more interested in proving the Bible, for instance, or finding monumental buildings, the palaces, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Uh, of course, there's Eric Klein's great book about uh, excavating at Tel Megiddo, mm -hmm. which sh sheds insight into this. So how, how was archaeology here in Israel in the 1930s? Well, first of all, some of what you say, unfortunately, continues till today. We still have people who are very much out to prove or disprove the Bible or to find monumental uh, finds or very special objects to, so that you have a um, you know a nice story, a sexy story to, uh, to tell. And I think you know there's less of this than there was in the past. But if we go back, to, as you say, to the 1930s, and not only 1930s, even before that and also after that, um, you had people who had a very strong agenda, which they allowed to take over their research. Now, we all have agendas. There's no such thing as objective science. Um, you know, we try to be as objective as possible. Um, but I think in certain cases, um, the subjectivity takes over. And so um, if you are looking to prove something, um, you'll probably find the proof that you want to find, even if it's not there. Um, and I think um, one of the things that we have to do is try to shed or our ideological baggage as much as we can and try to uh, research the past as objective sciences as possible. And the way we do it is we have to study um, as much as the past as possible. I, I very much like the analogy that um, what we find of the past is sort of like a jigsaw puzzle. Imagine you had a jigsaw puzzle with 10,000 pieces and we were only given 300 and they didn't stick together and we didn't have any of the border and they didn't even give him the box with the picture on it. So with those 300 pieces, we have to try to recreate um, the picture of the past. And so to do this, we have to use as many um, analytical perspectives in the study of the past. And as archaeology develops from the times of the 30s until today, more and more um, tools have been added to our toolkit. And I would say that in the 1930s, there were some archaeologists, even when they came with an agenda, tried to use the best methods and the best analyses that they could, um, while others did not. And I think there's an ongoing uphill effort among most professionals as you go through every decade and decade um, for, I would say, the leading group to try to bring in the better methods, the better theory, the better excavation, the better 
um, a documentation so that we can try to uh, understand the past in a, in a more um, complete manner. Now, for the non-archaeological viewer, the layperson, um, I think very often that beautiful object um, talks to uh, them much easier than a piece of broken pottery or a fragmentary bone or a layer of, uh, of you know, if we can take layers of sediment now and, and tell a whole story about this, you know, and, and the layperson isn't going to look at it. That's, well, that's just a pile of dust. You know, what do I care about a pile of dust? So, so if you get a beautiful Greek vase or, um, you know, a, a, you know a, the mask that you mentioned before, there's something aesthetic and speaks to much more directly. But I think as archaeologists, we have to go way beyond that. It's not just the object. It's the whole story that goes around with the object. And the object, even if in the past it was of, of, uh, of value, you know, let's say you find a beautiful ivory bowl, which beautiful, it's beautiful today, and it was of uh, significant meaning in the past as well, but it, it's not only the ivory bowl, how they used it, where it came from, who used it, who didn't use it, why is it found here and not there, can we tell where the ivory came from, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You've used the word science several times, and in fact, in the movie, uh, it was alluded to as well by Indiana Jones reprimanding his colleague, that's not science, Buzz, but... I wonder when did archaeology become a science? Because initially it seemed like some of the archaeologists were biblical scholars or architects or things of that nature. So when did it become its own scientific field? Well, I think the study of the past was always some sort of a science. If you define science as uh, a field of inquiry. So I think it was. So if you look at, you know, um, archaeology very often in the past was connected to humanities or, for example, in North America, it's very often connected to the social sciences. Um, but even in the humanities, um, you know, in, in, for example, the academic study of Jewish topics in Hebrew is called Madai Hayahadut, the science of Judaism. So it's what it's saying is that I'm taking an, a topic and I'm studying it in a scientific manner, in an organized, as objective manner as possible. Uh, so I think that goes for any uh, field of study. Uh, I think in archaeology, what we have is because of this paucity of the data or the preservation of the data, we have to bring in um, perspectives to this inquiry that come from humanities, social sciences, exact sciences, natural sciences, geosciences, etc., all try to bring this together to understand the past um, in a more complete manner. And even then, our understanding of the past is very limited. Um, it's, it's um, you know, we just had a conference at Bar-Ilan University on archaeology of the modern period. So first of all, people say, why do you need archaeology of the modern period? Everything's written. And it turns out that, first of all, everything isn't written, and there's a lot of aspects of daily life, even of today, that we don't know about um, and, you know, we don't write down about. And so looking at modern times through an archaeological lens also can provide us information. Um, but once we start going further back and there's less and less historical data and less and less preservation of the physical data that we use for as archaeologists, so our understanding of the past becomes hazier and hazier and hazier and hazier. So the more, the more we, can th we can add to our toolkit to throw into the analysis, we have a chance of getting more answers. 
I imagine in a thousand years, archaeologists will consider this a dark period because the books will have been, become waterlogged and destroyed and there will be no internet data available to the technology that they have. So we'll just be those poor, primitive people who lived and had these plastic boxes that they carried around with them in their pocket. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So... Educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4 by 4 Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn back to the idea of archaeology as science. And, and over the course of your 40-year career, you've seen, I imagine, quite a stark uh, evolution, quite mm -hmm. a stark, huge startup nation drive here in Israel, at least, because even in the past 10 years in which I've been following archaeology more closely, there's all sorts of new technology, all sorts of new fields of archaeology that have opened up. Okay, well, first of all, it's completely true. I mean, if I think of what I was taught as a student, both in the class and how I was taught to excavate and the, ex and the types of analyses that were conducted uh, from the materials that I as a student excavated, as opposed to what I can do now at excavations and research projects that I conduct or my colleagues conduct, it's a, a world of a difference. And um, again, going back to an analogy, which I really like is... It's sort of like the comparison between 19th century medicine and 21st century medicine. We have the same goals, 
but a whole new set of completely unknown um, tools, methods uh, that we, you know, in, in medicine. So, you know, a lot of less people die of heart attacks. You know, um, people can have a hip replacement surgery um, and it works wonders. Um, you know, my paternal grandfather died of meningitis and a year later they discovered penicillin probably would have saved him. So, I mean, that's the type of, you know, in medicine, it's a little different, but nevertheless, so this, the same thing happens. I think uh, maybe in 40, 50 years is that there's been a, a real revolution in archaeology that it's opened us to us, uh, to us all kinds of new uh, fields, new materials that, that either we didn't have access to, or we didn't even know existed. And, you know, let's just think, you know, like in the 1950s, they invented carbon-14 dating. Uh, Libby, this was a, an enormous revolution. Um, and this, by the way, it's, it's constantly being developed and it's becoming more and more sophisticated, accurate, uh, etc. But this goes for all kinds of other aspects. For example, everybody hears about DNA, ancient DNA. This is um, a developing field with spectacular results, um, both in the study of the human past and this goes, you know, even before our species, Homo sapiens, that we have uh, astounding results. Um, for example, we know now how that, you know, for example, the Neanderthals and the, and the Homo sapiens apparently intermixed uh, sexually. Um, so Here that's, in Israel. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really um, astounding results. But we have things, for example, now um, they're analyzing the, the plaque between your teeth. And it can tell what you ate, what diseases you had. Um, and just recently, um, they analyzed a cemetery um, from not far from, from the site I excavate, Ghat, and, and they from about 1000 BCE. And there were bananas uh, there and soy, which came from the other side of the earth. Um, so all kinds of uh, fascinating things. I mean, they're talking now about, you know, you can take DNA out of, out of the sediments. You know that if you know you walk by and you and you uh, shed a hair, your DNA is in the ground and that can be found. Um, and and it goes on and on and on. All kinds of methods and all kinds of uh, types of materials that we, even if we were aware of it, we didn't know that it exists. I mean, personally, one of the most fantastic things I've done is this this um, this ancient yeast that we discovered. I mean, we. From several sites, including mine, we uh, vessels which contained alcoholic beverages. Um, it turned out that there were uh, surviving yeast cells within the ceramic matrix of these vessels, and we dormant. Were, uh, well, they weren't dormant. They were probably the great, 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 great grandchildren of the original yeast. But for some reason, a very small micro colony managed to survive. Amazing. And uh, we were able to uh, isolate them, uh, regrow them, identify them. This, um, some of them were the exact same yeast that we use till today in beer. And just recently, we made beer out of this, um, which you may have tasted uh, at the museum, at the exhibition on the feast at the Muse Israel Museum. So there's this whole slew of, of new and exciting methods. I don't think a, a month goes by without somewhere in the world someone doing something cool um, with a new method or a variant of a, some method that we knew and, and adding on knowledge of the past that wasn't available beforehand. Maybe because I'm a bookworm or a journalist, I am always maybe perhaps too excited about inscriptions. And one thing that I've noted in the past uh, decade is the ability to use the technology to read them a lot better. Now, 
not everyone is as capable as Indiana Jones in uh, quickly reading uh, ancient, ancient, whatever coded Greek as uh, as he does in the movie. But uh, now today, we're able to read these inscriptions through imaging, things of that nature. Have you had experience with that? Well, we've done imaging on inscriptions, and they sometimes you can, you know, something that to the naked eye is very hard to um, to read using um, ultraviolet, infrared, and and all kinds of other uh, multispectral um, uh, wavelengths. You can sometimes see things better, but it's more than that. It's not only using imagery that can you see inscriptions better. Using various digital methods, you can also understand uh, a large corpus of inscriptions in a in a way that the human brain can't grasp. And so nowadays, um, using what we call digital humanities, you can scan tens of thousands of inscriptions in Akkadian, in Syriac, in Hebrew, in Latin, or whatnot. And first of all, you can teach the, com- the computer to read you know, ancient script. Once it learns to read ancient script, you can ask it, for example, um, what's the um, the average distance between vowels and nouns um, in this type of sentence or that type of sentence? And it can give you answers to questions that even if we could ask, we didn't have the uh, the computational abilities in our limited brain to, to give answers to that. So there's all kinds of very, very exciting stuff coming out from all directions. And I think it's, I think the the main thing that comes out is that to do good research today in archaeology or anything that has to do with the past, you have to be interdisciplinary. The day in that you know the days in which you had one scholar who knew all the languages and recognized all the material and could jump from anywhere to anywhere and and study the past, you know, with all the available tools, are gone. Um, today. Even in an area where I'm an expert, such as you know the Bronze and Iron Age of the land of Israel, when I excavate, I have to use a a whole team of co-investigators, each one with his expertise or his or her expertise in a very specific field to bring together a better picture of the past. I can attest to that. When I visited your site several years ago with one of my children, the bone expert had just come and a brick person was on his way to <laughs> talk about some kind of stove or furnace you found. You uh, mentioned residue analysis, and on some of the cases that we're hearing about, um, the residue analysis was taken from something that was found perhaps even 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Is this changing the way that you're dealing with artifacts once they come out of the ground? Well, um, I would say even before they come out of the ground, one of the things that we know that if we want to conduct um, various types of analyses, um, uh, for example, whether it's organic residue analysis, whether it's DNA or other, very often you have to excavate it as if you're excavating um, like in a, in, a, um, in a surgical room. Yeah, you know, you have to sometimes wear masks and gloves and even a hazmat suit, uh, so you don't contaminate um, the the specimens that you're you're uh, uh, excavating. Um, you know, it's sort of like nowadays uh, when you see um, police work, you know, CSI type of work on crime scenes. Nowadays, they they wear these suits because they want to. They don't want to bring in their um, DNA their dirt, their etc. into the crime scene. It makes it uh, complicated. So the same thing goes for archaeology. Um, we have to work very, very carefully 
to try to um, not bring in extra information um, from the thing. And by the way, one of the questions is for, you mentioned organic residue analysis. Um, people can ask, one second, you say there was vanilla in this vessel. How do we know that it didn't come off of the sandwich that you ate at lunch? Um, so there's a whole procedure in the analysis of organic residue or, or DNA or all kinds of other things is to be able to differentiate between the old and the new. And for example, if I claim there's vanilla in this vessel, so I have to check um, the residue around it and all kinds of um, other vessels to show that in only one there is and the others there aren't. So there's a reason why it survived in here and it's probably related to its original function. So we're very much aware of that, that issue. I recently received a press release from uh, one of the universities here, I won't name which one, and it seemed like an interesting story, but my eyes glazed over because it was so technical that I couldn't find the story in the story. Mm. Are you finding that in, in the science of archaeology as well? Well, I would say that um, nowadays it's sometimes hard to follow the technical details of some of the of what's going on. And if I read an article... Um, and the field is not my expertise, and I understand it, so I'll turn to a colleague who knows more about that and say, what do you say about this? Um, you know, so that you have a, you know, another expert opinion on the, on the matter. So I think, you know, it's, I think in any field where you, you're bringing in so many uh, different expertises and different analytic perspectives, so you have to be able to utilize uh, your colleagues when something new pops up, because if it's out of your field, you really don't know, you don't have the, I would say, the critical apparatus <laughs> to really uh, look at something critically. And that brings me to one of the things you mentioned in your lovely article about Indiana Jones and philosophy in, in a collection. Um, you mentioned that you're in the search for facts, not truth necessarily. But mm. don't you always kind of wish that the facts build into at least some kind of truth? Well, uh, I would say we're looking for different types of facts. And, you know, they always say that the um, archaeology is the art of digging a hole and then, uh, you know, telling a story about it. So we are trying to understand the past from the, from the objects, from the facts, from the analysis that we conduct. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to uh, do is we have to be very careful um, between an interpretation that's rock solid and an interpretation that's a possibility. And I don't think we, I'm saying we as a profession, we're not careful enough to differentiate between uh, the two. That means, you know, someone comes up with a find, throws out an interpretation, and it makes a great headline in a newspaper. Um, but I think if you would have said, you know, this is my interpretation, and I think there are, there can be others, you know, if you did that, you wouldn't get the headline. So I think one of the things that we have to do is even if it doesn't work in the, you know, the Times of Israel, um, you know, uh, banner, uh, we have to be uh, careful to take into account, um, let's say, the other opinion, the, the skepticism, the minimal uh, interpretation. You know, when we very often, uh, I would say it's easy to go for the simple, you know, black and white uh, uh, explanation, but I think we have to aim to try to at least tell the public that this is my suggestion. I can't, I can't guarantee that this is exactly what happened, but I think this is my, but you, you should know there are other op options. Now that's, that's not very sexy. 
And it is a push-pull situation in which most of the digs, at least here in Israel, perhaps around the world, are in a way publicly funded, would you would you say, or privately funded through massive donors or publicly funded through universities. So you need to drum up some kind of interest in the mm-hmm. field. Oh, well, first of all, um, there has to be interest. Um, and I think since archaeology is a field that's, at the end of the day, funded in some manner by the public, it's whether donations or through money coming from research uh, foundations or from the government or from whatever, you are getting money from the public. Uh, Gone are the days when archeologists are independently rich and they can fund their own excavations. I wish I was that and I can fund my excavation, but but nobody, nobody has that nowadays or very few people have that nowadays. So the money we have comes from the public. So I think we do have to have a very clear um, eye towards the public's understanding of what's going on and justify why we are wasting your uh, funding and and prove that it's not wasting. Uh, I think it is important to raise that awareness of the public. And I've had, you know, I I don't remember if you, but people who work on uh, internet newspapers have told me that whenever there's archeology span article in the newspaper on that day, that's one of the best read, you know, features in the newspaper for that day. Without so, a doubt. So, so I think there is a, a there is a public interest. We should foster the public interest, but I think we also have to do it in a in a responsible way. Because if we run to the public and tell a story which has no basis, first of all, you know, two years from from now, when I publish it, um, I look a f- like a fool if I announce A and it turns out B. So you know, I try I try not to. I, some people don't mind that, but I, that bothers most people. The other thing is, archaeology is, is, a, is such a popular topic, and particularly in this region, archaeology is very often used for non-archaeological ideological agendas, whether uh, religious, nationalist, etc. So if we go out and spin a yarn that has no connection to actually what it is, and that then is uh, misused by politicians, by um, uh, religious leaders, or the lay public, so we're we're you know we're actually perhaps setting up minefields uh, with with our materials. So I think we have to be we have to be uh, careful. But on the other hand, I think it's important to uh, to sell your wares in a in an attractive manner, and which by the way goes back to uh, the movies, the Indiana Jones movies. I think. As I said, this has nothing to do with archaeology, and if anything, you know, I would say it's almost anti-archaeology in many ways, but it has brought archaeology to the public's interest in a very, very significant manner, and numerous archaeologists in the field for the last several decades have come to archaeology because of the Indiana Jones movies, having seen them as a, you know, a child or as a teenager or even as an adult, it's, oh, this is fun. I want to do this. And you, and you go, and now it may in the end turned out to be something else, but that was the initial, uh, jumpstart on, um, for many people. And I think that's very important. I think that's why, um, I always say that I forgive Indiana Jones for his horrible, uh, archeological technique because he's, he's been such an important ambassador for our field. And he's contributed substantially, perhaps more than anybody else, um, you know, even more than Laura Croft. <laughs> Fair enough. Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. As a Jew, there are few things more gratifying than seeing a halachically Jewish actor, Harrison Ford, 
knock out Nazis on the big screen. Watching that happen in Jerusalem just brings it to another level entirely. But as my colleague Matt Goldberg noted in his recent review of Dial of Destiny, Nazis have never been closer to America than they are in Dr. Jones's latest outing. He writes, The film, A Reflection of Our Current Era, where white supremacy and anti-Semitism are now virulent strains in American politics, asks, how did we get here? That, of course, is one of the questions that the field of archaeology attempts to solve. Special thanks to Charlie Summers, who helps me with the What Matters Now transcripts. This episode was recorded at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Shalom. Shalom.